Hello, welcome to Advancing Agriculture, legal insight for the ag finance industry, where we connect you to what matters in the complex and highly regulated world of agricultural finance and the farm credit industry. In this episode, we are completing the second installment of a two-part series on security interests and agricultural lending and some of the issues a creditor may face in these areas. In this second of two installments, we will begin by addressing certain issues relating to fixture filings and personal property security interests, and will then address the Food Security Act and notice requirements under that act and some practical tips in addressing these issues. This is Elizabeth Benefield, and after 10 years serving as in-house counsel with Farm Credit Institutions, I joined Hush Blackwell, where we consistently work with agricultural finance clients. I'm here today with my colleague, Stephanie Kaiser. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm Stephanie Kaiser, and I'm a partner here at Hush Blackwell. I've been practicing law for about 22 years. I have served as in-house general counsel to a large lending institution and have also served as an outside GC or general counsel for the better part of my career as well. The issues we're going to talk today are some of those issues that Elizabeth and I commonly face in representing secured creditors. With that being said, Elizabeth, let's pick up from where we left off last time and talk about kind of installment two. These are some of those issues that we previewed in the first installment of this two-part series. And here, I think we should start off maybe with talking about some fixture filings and financing statement tips and just some practical areas, distinguishing fixture filings from personal property and kind of go down that lane to kind of build onto the primer we established before. Sure. Great. And thank you, Stephanie. So I think the first thing that you always need to think about when we're talking about fixture filings is what is a fixture? Um, Traditionally, a fixture is going to be something that was initially a piece of personal property, but has now kind of become part of real estate by being physically attached to that property. While most of your states are going to offer in their Uniform Commercial Code a version of the definition of that fixture, it isn't always the easiest thing to be determined. Um, If there's any disputes, courts are going to generally look at those disputes and decide those cases um, if the item is indeed a fixture, looking at some of the following things. So perhaps the degree to which the object is attached to the real property, the ease with which anyone could remove that object from the real property. The intention of the parties is always going to have a lot to do with that as far as, you know, whether it was supposed to be permanent or removable third parties, reasonable expectations of the property. So would someone purchasing that property expect that item to still be there after they purchased it? A fixture filing to be done correctly does require the UCC1 financing statement to be filed, including the UCC addendum, as well as recording those in the appropriate county real property records. So if you remember in the first installment, we spoke about the appropriate filing office for the actual UCC1 financing statement. So this would be in addition to that. So you wanna look at that appropriate place of filing the addendum with the fixture filing as the real property office in the county or counties where those fixtures are located. So like I say, that's in addition to that state filing based on the debtor's location. Filing in the real estate records is to give notice to real estate parties. If you're ever in doubt about filing in the state, filing in the county, you should always just file in both. When you're filing that fixture filing, you want to make sure you review any provided instructions from the Secretary of State's office, but generally that fixture filing is going to include the name and address of the owner of real property, especially if that's not the same as the debtor. So you'll see on that UCC1 addendum, there's a spot specifically for if it's not the same as the debtor, including the name of the owner of that real property. You may see that a lot with your agricultural situations, especially if you have someone who's growing on leased real estate. the owner of that real estate take that lien on crops growing on that. You'll want to make sure to include that owner's name. Um, there are several check boxes on the addendum. Again, following your instructions specific to your state, you'll have to make sure that you indicate that it is supposed to be treated as a fixture filing in order to make it effective. 
So it's also going to have to the addendum include a real property description. So if you remember kind of back to the first installment, we spoke a lot about how the collateral description was very important to making sure you have the appropriate lien in place. And we have the same issue here. So if you are doing a fixture filing, you have to make sure it describes the agricultural property's location and describes it in a way that it can be identified. You know, you mentioned that, and I think you spoke just a little bit ago, and like you said, we spoke, uh, spoke in our last installment, that some of these filings have to be accomplished at the county level. You know, we always talk about financing statements being filed at the Secretary of State level, of course, and we know that's true. When it comes down to these fixture filings, you know, and they are county-based, a lot of the ways that we often accomplish that under the states where we're operating are, you know, through your deed of trust or your mortgage filing. And as part of that, you do that because you want to make sure in that instrument, if you have it stated correctly under that state law, that this also operates as a financing statement. And, you know, this deed of trust or this mortgage operates as a financing statement and secures the following or includes the following collateral. And you kind of have that listing of either personal property, fixture filings, kind of the hybrids, as you might want to call them in these spectrums, just to make sure you cover it all. That's a common way we've been able to accomplish that in those states where that's a permissible way approach. Is that sort of what you see, too, in your experience? Yes. I mean, you'd want to check, obviously, you know, jurisdiction based, but, you know, what we typically will see is a creditor, you know, filing an, an agreement, an instrument that purports to be a mortgage deed of trust, as well as the security agreement and financing statement. Yes, that can be accomplished that way. Perfect. And as you mentioned, those are filed in the public record in the county. Um, you know, in addition to kind of what we're, we're talking about there, just, you know, talking about the description of that real estate, you know, and making sure that it's sufficient under local law. So it also has to be, you know, sufficient to give a constructive notice of mortgage. And again, look at your jurisdiction to see what those requirements are. Um, give you an example, you know, sometimes you have, especially with agricultural property, a collateral description that has extensive meets and bounds descriptions. You know, maybe that's two, three pages and it's not going to fit into the box on the UCC addendum. So you'll always want to check what the rules are in your jurisdiction as far as, you know, having attachments to those filings when you're putting those out. The duration of the fixture filing is also five years. Um, you know, we just mentioned that to not confuse that with real property liens. You know, you're filing it there, but that doesn't mean it all of a sudden has the same, you know, duration of the mortgage. And again, only talking about if you're doing the UCC1 financing statement, not if you filed, you know, within the deed of trust. Um, but, and those can be, like we spoke about last time, continued every five years for that, you know, as long as that duration goes on. Um, you know, I always like to mention for creditors here, the impact of not filing the fixture filing or, you know, having it improperly filed. Um, you know, there's some good news, bad news there. Um, obviously, if you have filed it in the state where you needed to, you, your lien may still have some priority over other creditors, you know, based on that state filing. Um, but you'd not have priority over other real estate creditors. So, you know, all is not lost, but you always just want to make sure as a fixture filing that you're getting that into that county record somehow as well. So next thing I want to do is just talk about some specific fixture filings and some unique things. One of the first things I think I want to talk about is just the uniqueness of timber. So timber is actually going to be real estate unless it is timbered to be cut and removed under a conveyance or contract of sale. Then it becomes goods. So in order to perfect an interest in standing timber, that's done by a mortgage or deed of trust. So it's filed with those instruments in the county where that timber is located. But a security interest in timber to be cut is only going to be enforceable and attached only if the security agreement includes a description of the land concerned with it, and if the lien is then perfected by filing the financing statement, including a fixture filing. Solar panels also kind of become very popular in the last decade plus. You know, that's becoming a better way for people to use land. So those are also goods under Article 9, but obviously they're often very permanently affixed to real estate as well. And that could be done in a manner which would require a fixture filing in order to have a lien on the solar panels themselves. You'll often find that financing of those panels may request you to obtain a subordination 
rear lien holder, so it would be possible to finance the actual solar panels with that subordination from anyone holding a real estate. You may often, as an agricultural creditor too, find that you have customers who are leasing their land out to people to install solar panels on it that may approach you as well for subordination. So there's just some obvious things that come up in those situations. Last but not least, I want to just talk a little bit about crop liens because crops, you kind of have to think of their evolution from seed to harvest and crop to harvested crop and how that can change their status as real or personal property and their category under the UCC along the way. So we want to look at crop liens that are goods, but when they are in the ground and growing, they're going to be fixtures as well. In that case, you would make, need to make sure you're also doing a fixture filing for those. Um, there are some jurisdictions that may allow crops to be included in the mortgage or deed of trust, so, so you'll want to look into that in your state. You know, Elizabeth, when you talk about that, this is something that we deal with a lot. And I think at the very outset of this section, you were talking about just fixtures in general. So you go to law school and you hear about fixtures and what is a fixture? And oftentimes you think about Let's say you have a piece of equipment. I'm going to take a dairy, for example. So let's say you have a dairy and you you put up a lean-to that isn't you know really affixed to the property, but then you put down some concrete slab and you affix it to uh, your metal sheeting up to that, and then you affix it to that concrete slab. Now you have an improvement. You know, definitely is going to be a fixture, if not a full-on real estate improvement. But then also you have certain equipment that you you know affix into or bolt into the property. That kind of becomes a fixture. And, you know, in law school, they talk about it sometimes as, you know, if you could use a screwdriver to remove it, or if you could just pull it out, it's not a fixture. So that's an easier kind of distinction, the screwdriver analysis when it's real or personal property and distinguishing between the two. But when it comes to what you're talking about in this last part about the crop lane, I think it's true. And I visualize this as being the seed is personal property. And then, of course, within the dirt and it's rooted, now it becomes a growing crop that can become a fixture. And then, of course, uh, when you sever it from the from the property and from the real property, and now you have, you know, your your cut crop, essentially your harvested crop, it could become inventory. It can become an it can become an account. It depends on how you convert that thing from seed to growing to post root and severance on through inventory, and then the proceeds of that can become, you know, for example, and it can be deposited into an account. So depending upon you as an a lender, you as a lender, what you anticipate using those proceeds for, what you anticipate having a security interest in, is it the operation or is it just truly that thing once it's severed from the dirt? You really need to know where your security interest begins and ends, um, especially if you have an operating line of credit or something like that, or if you just have the dirt loan, you know, um, and just make sure you know what you what you meant to get, because it really can matter, and you don't want some intervening creditor who has some portion of of that collateral along the way by their description that maybe you didn't fully compensate for either because you didn't treat it like a fixture or because you didn't include the right description in your security agreement slash financing statement or in your deed of trust that contained that financing statement language. So making sure you think about your, your collateral, how it can begin, how it can evolve, what it can be converted into, not converted in, in the sense of, you know, obviously usurping someone's rights, but what it can turn into. And then if negotiated into proceeds, then what it can then be used as and making sure you keep hopefully your interest all along the way, I think is really important. And so when you're talking about those things, I want to make sure that folks remember that and then document their security interest consistent with our initial discussion last time, make sure their security agreement covers all those things that they intended. And then they file in the county level if it's fixture and then the secretary of state, if it's meant to just be the personal property aspects or somewhere along the way. Absolutely. Stephanie, thank you for that. Um, if that's, Unless you can think, I guess, of anything else we want to make sure they know as far as fixture filings, I think it's a great time to launch into the Food Security Act. 
No, I think that that's good. And so with regard to the Food Security Act, I guess this is one of those areas um, that a lot of people don't deal with on a daily basis. And it's pretty important to know that this is, and when we say FSA sometime in this context, it means the Food Security Act of 1985. And certain state laws essentially um, were found by Congress to permit a secured lender to enforce liens against a purchaser of farm products, even if the purchaser was unaware of the lien. And those laws subjected a buyer of farm products, and, and I'm going to define that term in just a minute, without knowledge of the lender's interest, and that would subject them to double payment for the farm products that he or she purchased. So the exposure to that double payment inhibited free competition and placed a burden on an obstructed and obstruction to, excuse me, interstate commerce and farm products. And so when Congress saw that these things were, were possibilities, they said, we're going to pass the Food Security Act to help address some of those issues. And so generally speaking, what Congress passed in the Food Security Act is it says, except as otherwise provided in the Food Security Act itself, and we will talk about these exceptions, a buyer who is in the ordinary course of business, who buys a farm product from a seller engaged in farming operations, they shall take free of a security interest created by the seller, even though the security interest is perfected and the buyer knows of the existence of that interest. So I'm going to say that again, except as otherwise provided by federal law in that act, a buyer in the ordinary course who buys a farm product from a seller engaged in farming operations shall take free of a security interest created by the seller, even though security interest is per properly perfected and the buyer knows of that interest. Now, it seems horribly unfair, but keep in mind the purpose that we have this, this law being passed and then realize there's at least three exceptions that have been enumerated with regard to this law. Okay, so the first exception is a buyer of farm products takes subject to a security interest created by the seller if within one year before the sale that we're talking about, the buyer received written notice of the interest from the secured party or the seller that one, it's an original or reproduced copy of that notice. And number two, the notice contains a few things. The name and address is the secured party, the name and address of the person indebted to the secured party, the social security number or other approved unique identifier of the debtor or the IRS tax, IRS tax number, if not an individual, for example, a description of the farm products subjected to that security interest created by the debtor, including the amount of the products were applicable, the crop year, and the name of each county or parish in which the farm products are produced or located. Also, that notice must be amended in writing within three months, similarly signed, authorized, or otherwise authenticated and transmitted to reflect any material changes, will lapse either on the expiration of the statement or the transmission of the notice by the secured party, whichever occurs first, this is like a one-year notice, and last contains any payment obligations imposed on the buyer by the secured party as conditions for waiver or release of the security interest. And of course, the buyer has failed to perform the payment obligations. So the two main elements are you have to have a written notice that's provided by the buyer uh, to the secured party or the seller that contains the elements we just mentioned. And then you have the buyer failing to perform the payment obligations identified in that notice very specific and what i want to make sure i call out in this notice is this is the kind of notice that you provide directly to that secured party or seller so we keep that in mind when we're going to talk about the the notice requirements uh, for those a little bit uh, in just a little bit so the second exception of the three is a buyer of farm products takes subject to a security interest created by the seller if in the case of a farm product produced in a state that has established a central filing system so that's different from a direct notice state 
Number one, the buyer has uh, failed to register with the Secretary of State of that state that has a centralized filing system prior to the purchase of the farm products. And the secured party has filed what's called an effective financing statement or notice that covers the farm products being sold. And that effect, uh, effective financing statement is a defined term under the Food Security Act. I think it's in 1631E2, 7 U.S.C. 1631E2. And so that is, if you do obviously satisfy that, that's part of that exception, that second exception. And then the third and final exception is a buyer of farm products takes subject to a security interest created by the seller if in the case of a farm product produced in a state that has established a central filing system, again, different from direct notice, the buyer receives from the secretary of state of that, uh, of that particular central filing state written notice as provided in the statute that specifies both the seller and the farm product being sold by that seller as being subject to an effective financing statement, again, all within the definition of the act, and does not secure a waiver or release of the security interest specified in the effective financing statement or notice from the secured party by performing a payment obligation or otherwise. So these are three kind of exceptions to the general adage that it is possible that a buyer in the ordinary course obviously can purchase free and clear of a security interest unless one of these exceptions applies. Let me go back though briefly and state what some of these terms mean. So when I mentioned buyer in the ordinary course, that's a person under the statute who in the ordinary course of business buys farm products from a person engaged in farming operations and who is in the business of selling farm products. Then also the farm product definition itself, we keep using this term and I think we even used it in our last installment. Basically a farm product under the Food Security Act is an agricultural commodity such as wheat, corn, soybeans, or a species of livestock like cattle, hogs, sheep, horses, poultries that are used in, in or produced in the farming operation or a product of that crop or livestock and its unmanufactured state, such as like gin cotton, wool clip, maple syrup, milk, eggs, whatever, that's in the possession of a person engaged in farming operations. So it's kind of a variety of farm products or that meets these elements of farm products. So those are kind of the two kind of key aspects of what I mentioned uh, these these definitions, of course, as well as the exceptions, why those are so important. Now, we talked about the purchase uh, can be made uh, of certain farm products can be made free and clear of these interests. Now, let's go to the flip side of it, and there's something similar on the sales side. So, under the Food Security Act, a commission merchant or a selling agent who sells in the ordinary course of business a farm product for others shall not be subject to a security interest created by the seller in that farm product, even though the security interest is perfected, and even though the commission merchant or selling agent knows of the existence of that interest. So there are exceptions. So those exceptions uh, are very, I think that they're similar conceptually to the exceptions we just talked about in the buyer uh, arena. But let's go ahead and talk about that first one. So a commission merchant or selling agent who sells a farm product for others is going to be subject to a security interest created by the seller in the farm product if within one year before the sale of that farm product, the commission merchant or selling agent has received from the secured party or seller written notice of the security interest organized according to farm products that number one is an original reproduced copy, very similar to the other side of the first exception on the, on the purchase side. And it contains the name and address of the secured party the name and address of the person indebted to the secured party, the debtor, the borrower, the social security or the other proof unique identifier of the debtor or tax ID, if not an individual, a description of that farm product subjected to the security interest created by the debtor, including the amount of the product, where applicable, crop year, and the name of the county or the parish in which the farm products are produced or located, 
The notice must be amended in writing within three months, similarly signed, authorized, or otherwise authenticated and transmitted to reflect material changes, much like the first exception we heard earlier. It's going to lapse on either the expiration period of the statement or transmission of the notice that's signed and authorized or otherwise authenticated by the secured party, that the statement has lapsed, whichever occurs first, and contains any payment obligations imposed on the commission merchant or selling agent by the secured party as conditions for a waiver or release. So I mentioned all of these things because this first exception to me is very much in line with how the other first exception was meant to operate and the reasons for that. But let me add a couple of quick things. Um, commission merchant is one of the terms that I've been using in this portion of, of the discussion. A commission merchant is a person engaged in the business of receiving any farm product for sale on a commission basis or for or on behalf of another person. The selling agent, which is also a concept we've been talking about in this section, that's a person other than a commission merchant who is engaged in the business of negotiating the sale and purchase of any farm product on behalf of a person engaged in farming operations. So it's kind of what you would expect but just wanted to make sure we kind of went through um, those sorts of things so it's very familiar for all of us as we're talking through these couple of issues. So the last couple of uh, exceptions, again, very similar to the buyer side. Now we're on the sales side. In the case of a farm product produced in a state that has established a central filing system, the commission merchant or selling agent has failed to register with the secretary of state of that state prior to the purchase of farm products and the security party has filed an effective financing statement or notice that covers the farm product sold, very similar again to the other exception we heard earlier uh, for similar purposes. And last, in the case of a farm product produced in a state that has established a central filing system, that commission merchant or selling agent receives from the Secretary of State of such state a written notice as provided by the statute, and that specifies both the seller and the farm products being sold, by which the seller, as being subject to an effective financing statement or notice, and does not secure a waiver or release of that security interest specified in the effective financing statement or notice from that secured party before performing any payment obligation or otherwise. So these are meant to conceptually be very similar on both the buyer, uh, when a buyer obviously can take free and when a seller can sell free of a, uh, of a perfected security interest. So if a secured creditor can take these steps and give that notice, and of course they may be able to satisfy um, obviously these exceptions and not obviously be subjected to the penalties of the Food Security Act as it may be considered. And on the other hand, you also would have somebody who might be able to avoid the double payment opportunity or obligation or burden that could occur in the absence of this statute. So very important that people kind of know how these things work. And, and I've been involved in a lot of these, what I'm going to call triple party disputes where you have, let's just use a hypothetical. Let's say you have a feed yard who's feeding out cattle subjected to a security interest um, of a secured lender, and then you have obviously the borrower or debtor who's pledged, you know, this cattle uh, to secure a debt with a secured creditor, and they're also having their cattle fed out at a feed yard. You have now an opportunity, obviously, to have another lien or interest, a lien created under an agricultural statutory lien, a Food Security Act lien, or something like that, depending upon the disposition or what happens with that cattle, um, obviously, uh, under this hypothetical at the feed yard. So this is an opportunity where you could have a triple or three-party dispute or multi-party dispute, everyone claiming an interest. And it comes down to the notice that was provided, whether it satisfied the statute and contained all of those requirements we discussed. And it can become quite an onerous burden to try to prove these things if you didn't satisfy everything perfectly. And so for me, Elizabeth, I get really nervous because I always want to make sure, did we know enough about our, our borrower or debtor's business to be able to line up the notice correctly? And I think even before we go there, I think it's important, uh, each of these exceptions, again, on the buyer side and on the sales side, 
are hinging upon one of two things, either a direct notice date or what's called a central filing state. And so I wanted to briefly touch upon those. So I think there's currently 19 or so states that are considered central filing states where they have this kind of system set up where an effective financing statement can be made through the centralized filing or notice can be made on a centralized basis that satisfies all uh, persons who would be subject to that notice. Whereas other states, the other 31 or so of the 50 states we have here are what's called direct notice states. Texas is currently a direct notice state. So what does that mean for the lender at closing? And Elizabeth, for me, whenever I know that we're going to have livestock or just really even farm products as part of a closing, I'm going to want to make sure we get our lists. I want to make sure we have a list required in that security agreement. And so under the statute expressly, it says a security agreement can uh, obviously, a secured creditor, excuse me, can require a debtor uh, and person to furnish to the secured party a list of the buyers, commission merchants, and selling agents to whom or through whom uh, they may engage in farming operations or and or may sell such farm products. And that just makes sense so that the lender or the secured creditor can discharge their ability to either file an effective notice or financing statement in the centralized filing states or give direct notice. Uh, and mind you, you have to do it every year uh, under some of these uh, provisions. So making sure you do a timely notice, but to all those persons to whom it applies. And of course, then if you ever do have someone like a debtor who sells outside that list, there are penalties under the Food Security Act for that. So for example, if the security agreement contains a requirement, obviously that the buyer has to, or the debtor has to give a list of those persons like we've just mentioned. And if the person engaged in farming operations sells to or through a person that they didn't include on the list, then the person engaged in farming operations shall shall be subject to fines and penalties as set forth in the Food Security Act unless the person notified the secured party at least seven days prior to the sale so they would have an opportunity to make an effective notice and filing or accounts to the secured party for the proceeds not not later than 10 days after the sale. So monitoring your debtor behavior is really critical in this area and knowing your debtor or and or borrower and the flow of funds and the flow and disposition of how they sell their products, very critical to making sure you kind of mind the shop as best you can in these regards. I mentioned some fines. I'll kind of, I'll mention this here before I want to switch over to some tips. So a person who violates the Food Security Act um, is going to be fined the greater of $5,000 or 15% per annum per year of the value or benefit received for the farm product described in the security agreement. Now, from a practical perspective, they may be insolvent, but this still is an opportunity to, of course, assess fines and make sure you can uh, seek to recover those as well. So kind of given this swarm, and I know we said this is kind of a deep area and it's much easier to kind of diagram through than it is to maybe orally describe, but generally speaking, if you're a secured creditor um, and your collateral includes farm products within that definition we've been talking about, you're going to want to know about the Food Security Act, and you're going to want to make sure that you have a notice set up in your system that satisfies the statute. You have good tracking uh, mechanisms in terms of calendaring at your shop, that you have your security agreement require um, the the debtor you know, to notify you and provide you with a list of all the buyers, commission merchants, and selling agents, what have you, so you know where all of their uh, farm products may be uh, sold in commerce and who may be touching you know, the products and proceeds along the way so you know how to protect yourself and give right notices. So those are some of the places just to kind of generally start with. But even outside of that, I say get a good notice put together and get your know how to effectively uh, file or complete and then file your effective financing statement to in the centralized filing states. But here's something else that I think is important, Elizabeth, and, and for those of you who, who maybe you know, don't do this every day. 
think about not just you're going to have your security agreement. And I hope it also says, you know, um, you're going to keep the collateral in the place located and designated in the security agreement. But we all know that a lot of our collateral, first of all, if you've got cattle, I'm going to use cattle as an example. If you have cattle, it can be moved. It can be sold in different locations. Not that it may not constitute a breach, but it's highly movable. And even if they don't locate the property or move it outside of the state um, where it was supposed to be maintained, if you also have a security interest in the proceeds from the disposition of that collateral, you want to make sure that you know where those monies are going to go to. And so for me, especially if you have people who live near the border or who sell across states or who have an operation that's multi-state based, do be sure that you're aware of how to perfect your interest in all of the states and do make sure, especially if you don't have a long-standing history, but even if you do, do have an appropriate monitoring mechanism. Do have good covenants in your loan documents about, you know, pay or payee information, making sure you know where the money's coming from, making sure it matches periodically with the list of, of buyers or uh, selling agents or commission merchants that you've been provided, making sure all that matches up. Do your payers or payees, do they differ from the ones that were given to you? If so, let's make sure we get those updated and make sure that we obviously have that uh, have our effective notices um, being sent out to satisfy the Food Security Act. But then also outside of that too, and these are just some additional kind of comments, Elizabeth, I thought we might want to mention today is, you know, depending upon how well you may know your borrower, depending upon how uh, and your debtor and depending upon, you know, what your um, audit responsibilities are at your bank or how you tend to oversee some of your loans. Do you think about the Secretary of State doing searches and um, seeing if there are similar names to the one that your debtor or borrower has given to you with regard to the farm products and how they'll, the names that they'll sell them under? Do you see if there are family members who sell under the same or similar names? Um, obviously, do check and see if there are assumed names under which they may sell. Do check those checks or those proceeds when they're when they're remitted to you or the name under which you have your debtor selling these farm products. Did they sell under the name of their own name or some other name or was it a name that you're not aware of? And does it make sense that they sold under some other person's name? Um, looking at registered brands in your state or in the states in which they're uh, selling these farm products or buying farm products. Obviously, all of those things are, I think, really important just to make sure you have your requisite due diligence or ways to find out if your lists are adequate, in addition to obviously following up with a borrower from time to time to make sure it's accurate and reconciles with their activity. But even aside from that, and this goes a little far afield from the Food Security Act, but you do all obviously at time from time to time want to make sure that you look at the account activity. Is it cycling in and cycling out within the time period for the disp disposition of that particular farm product? Are the payments coming in? Are they required to come in? If not, are they installment based or are they are they really upon disposition of collateral? Making sure you know uh, the timing of the payments and making sure they, they track with what you're expecting is really important. Of course, that requires inspections too. Doing inspections of the collateral on an appropriately, appropriately spaced basis or periodic basis and requiring assembly, not just the right to inspect, but assembly, right to require assembly and inspection of that collateral is really important as well, along with UCC filing history. So, I mention all of these things because the Food Security Act has these provisions that you can satisfy, but in order as a secured creditor to satisfy all of them, you really need to make sure you know everything about your um, debtor's operation that you're taking on as collateral, to make sure your notices are effective, to make sure you fall within one of those exceptions when it matters, and to make sure that someone doesn't buy or sell your farm product uh, regardless of your security interests and leave you hanging. So I think that those are just some of the, the serious issues that I always want to just kind of 
mentioned, there's a number of other steps that we can, you know, probably cover in a different podcast about best ways um, to protect a secure creditor with a, a liquid collateral. But these are some of the things that just immediately come to mind under the Food Security Act that we've tackled from time to time that have given us a lot of success on making sure we have the interest that we wanted to have and can force it. So, Elizabeth, that's kind of, those are some of my thoughts. I don't know if you had any questions or thoughts that you think we might want to cover or address before we sort of wrap up this second installment of the podcast. I did just want to clarify, or I guess, you know, elaborate a little bit on one of the things that you'd said, Stephanie, you mentioned getting a list of their, you know, the people that they're selling to and also kind of having, make, making sure that they give you updates and that's on any kind of changing collateral or moving collateral or, you know, those people they may start selling to. And you talked about covenants. So, you know, I just want to kind of focus back on that for a moment. When we're saying covenants, you know, I guess we're talking about making sure we have a loan agreement in place. And um, just wanted to know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit. That's a good point. And that's a term that not everybody uses every day. So I'm glad you you picked up on that. So um, depending upon how your loan documents are structured, you may have a loan agreement that sort of specifies out here or specifies here's the basis under which we're making a loan. It's going to, you know, pursuant to our loan agreement, we're going to, you know, obviously, uh, make a loan that's evidenced by a promissory note and that's secured by a security agreement or by certain collateral is evidenced by a security agreement or deed of trust. And within that security agreement, for example, or maybe within the loan agreement, depending upon which, but generally within the security agreement or the deed of trust or mortgage, you're going to have covenants like the borrower, um, excuse me, the debtor shall, you know, maintain the collateral in a good and husband-like way. They're going to maintain the collateral at the location or locations designated and provided to the, uh, the secured creditor identified in the security agreement. Um, they are going to notify, obviously, the secured creditor of any changes in location. And so, generally speaking, when you're drafting a set of loan documents, you're going to have something called affirmative covenants and negative covenants. And affirmative covenants are those things that you agree to do, that you will do, that you will affirmatively do, like you know, provide uh, provide notice of changes or you know, um, provide updated financials, things like that. Negative covenants are things you agree not to do, such as you won't dispose of collateral without the lender's prior written consent and things like that. So when I'm mentioning some of these, you know, requiring the the debtor to provide a list of collateral or buyers, for example, um, that to me is going to be an affirmative covenant. And then, of course, on the negative covenant side, you might want to wrap it up that way, too, that they will not sell outside the list provided to you. And they'll give you prior written notice of any change in their list, you know, on it, uh, as before, prior to such change going into effect. Or they can't change their list without the lender's prior written consent, depending upon how you want to operate and oversee that loan. So those are some of the covenants requirements, as it is, of in terms and conditions of the security agreement that you want to have work for you as a secured creditor. And frankly, they're never meant to be onerous to the debtor or the borrower relationship. Instead, they're just meant to make sure that they're reflective of the risk that was that was taken into account when that loan was made and with regard to that collateral and to make sure that the lender is able to satisfy their legal obligations and to make sure the parties are operating as intended so that the appropriate, like I said, risk is accounted for in that relationship. So hopefully that kind of addresses that issue, but they're basically just agreements, terms and conditions that the debtor needs to satisfy under a security agreement with regard to this particular provision. Right. And when I always think too, you know, because we're the attorneys in the group, you know, we always like to tell our creditors, you know, once you've established all of these things under the agreements that, 
you know, the breach of the same kind of does create these situations for default, but, you know, kind of absent being able to just push that hard against someone. Have you seen the creditors having luck with just kind of setting those expectations in the beginning of the relationship and following through with them, you know, every year asking for that updated list or, you know, occasionally, you know, just confirming location of collateral. Do you see that being more successful, I guess would be a question. Oh, absolutely. And and I like what you just said, too, that I think is really important to the success of all of this. So at the outset of the relationship, I think it's important whether you've had a relationship with that quote unquote bank and debtor for 20 years or whether it's it's 20 days. When you sit down at closing, whether it's a closing of the original loan or a renewal or a servicing action, whatever, going through um, not telling them what all the documents mean, they need to read them for themselves. But going through, you know, we're making a cattle loan. This loan is, is a revolving line of credit. For $250,000, it's secured by all your farm products, not just the cattle, but all the farm products. Here's what that means. Uh, Under law, we obviously have to give notice to certain persons. Here's what that requires us to do. So we have a provision in here where you have to, you know, give us a list at the outset. Go ahead and complete that list. It becomes part of the security agreement. And just say, if anything changes, you got to tell us, and here's why. We don't want you to be in breach. We want you to to obviously satisfy these. So we want to make sure you understand that, you know, you does that work for you? And we can check in from time to time, but we do obviously want you to be aware of that obligation on your part. And then also here's a key issue, Elizabeth, kind of something you may think of uh, when you ask that question is let's say you have an installment-based cattle loan as opposed to um, uh, proceeds upon disposition. And sometimes they're hybrids of those, but let's say you say, you know, your payments are due on a quarterly basis so that and that aligns with your operation and here's why that aligns with your operation so that's how we've set it up if you happen to sell an excess or get beyond generally when you see an installment basis hopefully you might also see kind of a minimum margin and making sure that's maintained like borrowing based reports other times you might see for example um, proceeds being required to be remitted upon disposition of the collateral and the reason for that is simple either you should have um, you know, a, a credit extended secured by all the collateral you anticipated. So let's say that's $250,000 of collateral for a $200,000 loan or less. And if you, if you have $250,000 of collateral, you're good. But if you start selling that collateral, now your margins are off, for example. And now you may not be fully secured with regard to whatever your margin requirements are. So at all times, under that kind of a hypothetical you should either have cash reducing the the balance of the loan or you should have cattle or excuse me collateral and so if you have less collateral then obviously the loan balance should be less so a lot of times when we have these cattle secured lines of credit or whatever or, or term notes it's as soon as you dispose of the collateral those proceeds get remitted directly to the lender uh, either joint payable or directly from the sale barn for example And so that way the balance is reduced. That way your margins are typically maintained. And so all that to say is at the outset of the lending relationship, having a good conversation with the borrower or debtor and letting them know what the key terms are, when payments are required, what the collateral margins are, why these requirements on lists and and where they're going to sell property and who they're going to sell them through, who they're going to sell them to, explaining why that's important to avoid those miscommunications and signing off on those understandings. I think is really critical, not just so that everybody knows, but it enhances the compliance and it enhances the effectiveness of that relationship. I always think it's good to be upfront and let them explain, let them ask questions because too many times people just didn't know what they were required to do. And then that led to either defaults that were erroneous or excuse me, innocently made or defaults that were just frankly misguided. Um, And sometimes they're nefarious. Sometimes there is conversion. 
But all that being said, if you can set the relationship uh, correctly and let people know what their obligations or expectations are, it enhances the success of that lending relationship. Great, great. I would completely agree too. You know, just the more we can tell upfront, the better off we're going to be in the end. Um, We definitely covered some big topics here today. Um, Certainly some interesting stuff always going on. And unless you had anything else to add, Stephanie, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. I just want to thank everyone for joining us in this two-part series in Advancing Agriculture, Legal Insight for the Ag Finance Industry, where we connect you to what matters in the complex and highly regulated world of agricultural finance and the farm credit industry. We've been your hosts, Stephanie Kaiser and Elizabeth Benefield. Please look for us in our next episode, where we will address one of Stephanie's and my favorite topics, adverse actions under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and adverse credit decisions. We hope you can join us. 